You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Hello everyone and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I'm Nick Peters, your host, and bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. Today is no exception. Today I'm talking with someone who's more up and coming, which is something I like to do, because, you know, people gave me a chance when I was doing that, so I want to give back. And today I'm talking about Tommy Boy. Not the movie, the philosopher, namely Thomas Aquinas, my personal favorite. <laughs> And to do that, I brought on Gil Sanders. He studied under Edward Fesser for almost three years at PCC and got his bachelor's in philosophy at Cal State Los Angeles. He co-founded Ratio Christi at PCC, led a philosophy club, and went on to publish a paper in the CSULA Journal. His special areas of research include philosophy of religion, metaphysics, politics, and ethics. So, Gil, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. Hey, Nick. Well, thanks for having me. It's great to be on here. So um, it's good to be talking to a fellow Thomas, because last time I heard that you appreciate Aquinas as well. Despite us both being, you know, Protestants, we both recognize that there's still truth, a lot of truth in what he has to say. So I'm glad to be here and talk about this with you. So if my audience doesn't know much about you, can you tell us a bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing? Yeah, so I was... Interest in philosophy started at a young age. I was about like 12 years old. I'm from, I'm from California. So I had a lot of questions about different things. You know, California is very secular. And then I grew up in a household in which there were two opposing viewpoints. So I kind of always wondered what what's true, you know. And over time, as time went on, I had debates around forums. And I realized that philosophy was a great means, a great tool for discovering truth. And that was always been my objective, is just knowing what truth is and how to live by that truth. And so as uh, as I grew up, you know, I started to get into philosophy, about discovery of Aquinas, and I was very persuaded by the arguments for God's existence that he had. I thought they were very convincing, even though I'd read Richard Dawkins, I'd read all these different objections from like infidels.org. I was reading all these guys, Richard Carrier. Uh, but I found all these arguments very wanting, very, very deeply lacking in something that they didn't understand about reality that just didn't seem common sense what they were saying. So uh, Aquinas, I just opened my eyes. I just thought, wow, this is very commonsensical. It makes perfect sense of how I experienced the world, how many others experienced the world. So I came across Phaser, and ever since then, I wanted to become, you know, get taught under Phaser. So I went to Pasadena City College, where I got taught under him for three years. And I really enjoyed that experience. He's He's the best, my favorite professor, in my opinion. And from there, I've been just doing apologetics and starting a ministry. I got walkingchristian.com where I blog and I discuss various issues from an apologetics and practical standpoint. And I just want to kind of help people make a difference in the world. So that's what I'm doing. You know, you know I, I got to say, I don't understand 
some of you, because you, know, you are helping me with a live stream, which is what we're trying the first time. So if there's a delay, people, we apologize for what's going on. And so I figured, well, if you know his computer stuff, you gotta be a smart guy. But here I t hear you going on and on about a 13th century philosopher who's also a monk of all people. I mean, you know, don't you know we live in the world of modern science? I mean, who cares what a 13th century philosopher had to say? <laughs> well, yeah, that is definitely how most people would might perceive it. But that would be very um, elitist type of thinking, where 20th century, just because we're in the 10th, 20th century, it's suddenly we have it all figured out and everything that the past, everyone, all the past thinkers were completely wrong. I think that's very misguided. There's a certain elitism there. Just because we're in the future doesn't necessarily mean that all of our knowledge is better. If anything, all that we have in modern science was built upon these thinkers, where it's Aquinas, Aristotle. They provided tools necessary for the development of science. Um, Aristotle, in fact, was one of the first scientists. So if anything, these guys have contributed very deeply to our society without us even knowing it. And so I think they're perfectly relevant. It's not a matter of time. Um, they're talking about things that apply that back then just as much as now, like things like change. We experience change. They experience change. You know, they, they had they experienced time. They saw things coming into existence and going out of existence. These are universal features of experience. And they were talking about those universal features of experience and kind of understanding it in a philosophical way. So their thoughts are actually very relevant to today because they spend a lot of time thinking about it, unlike most people today. And I think it's very important if we reflect on that and what they think. In fact, if you see a poll by a later report, which is one of the group of philosophers, it's an informal poll, but they were asked what, what, um, what, what, what are the most, who are the most significant philosophers? And Aquinas was listed as number nine. He's the top nine most significant philosophers. So that should tell you something. It's like a lot of these academics, a lot of people today seem to realize the importance of Aquinas, the importance of Aristotle, the importance of Plato. They cast a long, deep shadow on 21st century thought. Even if you're rejecting Thomistic thought, you're still very much influenced in your rejection in light of Aquinas and Aristotle. So I think they're deeply important figures to think about today. Yeah, okay, well, let's go with the other end. <laughs> Where, you know, maybe someone said, okay, well, Gary, you're not stupid, but geez, don't you know we have the Bible and we have everything we need to know about God revealed in the Bible? Why do we need to study philosophy? What could Aquinas have learned from Aristotle about God that we don't find in sacred scripture? Hmm. Yeah, so this is a typical objection that I kind of see most prevalently by whether it's presuppositionalists or just fideists, those who don't believe that there's, there needs to be any reasons for our faith. Um, and I think this is just simply deep, deeply misguided. You know, Romans 1 says that God's creation reveals the attributes of God. It's very clear and evident for all to see. Um, then in Psalms as well, it talks about how there is a, and then, you know, there's the creation speaks without a voice, you know, of God's handiwork, of God's work. So there is a certain sense in which there are two types of revelations here. We have special revelation, which is scripture. And then we have natural revelations, which is God's creation and how God has manifested himself through the effects and the things in which are made. So, for example, if we take a piece of painting, for example, 
Um, that's the effect of painting that. But then we also can infer certain things about this person. Say, you know, they made a very sad painting. Perhaps this person has struggled with sadness. We may be able to infer that. We, or we can infer certain ways in which techniques in which this person has painted. So in a similar sense, we look at the effects of creation and we can see and infer certain attributes from God. You know, and so it's deeply important because we can see it. Everyone can see it. it says even the Gentiles, even the, who are, didn't have the law, didn't have the scriptures, didn't have the Bible. They knew that they knew God. They knew at least knew the general God, a general notion, even if it's in a confused way. Um, they still had some general idea of God, as scripture itself affirms. So I think this is very important that God reveals himself, not just to just one particular region of people, to the Jews, to a certain particular time, but that he reveals himself through creation, because that creation is a witness that's provided to everybody, not just to a select group of people. Um, and so they're not in competition. A lot of people think this is a co they're in competition, but they're not. Truth is truth, regardless of where it comes from. Truth is truth if it comes from the pagans, if it comes from an atheist, if it comes from a Christian. Truth is truth. God's truth cannot be paganized. You can't just because it comes from a, a pagan who says it. So that's my initial response. Okay, so let's start talking some about Aquinas before we leave it to his philosophy. Who is he exactly? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Thomas Aquinas, as you pointed out, he came from the 13th century. He's a Dominican. Um, he's trained in, you know, Dominican, like, basically kind of like a school of thought, you could say, within the Catholic Church. So he came as one of these thinkers. He was being taught learning in school. Um, and he happened to study Aristotle because Aristotelian works were available at the time. They were being published and translated in the language in Latin. And so ever since then, he sought to synthesize um, Aristotelianism with Christianity because he thought that Aristotle made a lot of sense of the ideas of what we see in Christian thought. And so he, ever since then, he wanted to defend the Christian faith using Aristotle's thought. What he basically, or others have kind of described it, is basically Aquinas baptized Aristotle's thinking in Christianity. You know, he used it to, as a means to prove who God is, as a means to defend the Trinity and all those other ideas that we consider essential to the faith. So that's Aquinas. He's a giant. He's an intellectual giant among the uh, philosophical world and well-respected and had a high influence on even Protestants Francis Turretin, for example, these other guys, these, or even the Reformed camp, they have a lot of influences from Aquinas. And so it's very important that we take what he says seriously as Christians, and just so we understand where we are and understand our history. Well, I do happen to take him seriously, as you said. I was a student at SES for a long time, and mm -hmm. being there, learning to be a Thomas kind of comes of hoping. I was very resistant to Thomism when I first showed up at Ben as G.K. Chesterton, the Apostle of Common Sense, found out Aquinas just makes sense of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. I think the moderns definitely betrayed um, knowledge, if anything. They kind of undermined knowledge because they abandoned the common sense notions that we hold, that the common person would hold to. And I think that's been a problem that's revealed in various ways, like in quantum mechanics, we see all kinds of problems arising because of that. And, or more relativism, they don't know how to ground morality, so they ground, or if they do ground morality, it's a divine, the radical divine command theory, where God just can command anything. So there are different ramifications that we see of, 
abandoning Aristotelian atomistic thought. And I think it's super important that we regain, we regain that knowledge so that we can under, continue developing, having that true understanding of the world as for what it really is. So I'm really glad that you got into that. How did you, how did you, how did you get acquainted with Aquinas? Well, I went to SES. Where did you come across? I went to SES as a student. Oh, SES, okay. And while there, I was majoring in mm-hmm. philosophy more as a background to apologetics. And my professor was Jason Reed, okay. who taught Aquinas very well. And hmm. before too long, I thought, yeah, this is what makes sense. Because I went there more of a fan of Ron Nash at the time. I, mean, I still think he was a great philosopher. But he was very much a a Platonist. Mm -hmm. And so, I was a Platonist at the time. And after some time, I realized, like, oh, I'm a Thomist. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. That's a really good, interesting transition there. I mean, Plato is pretty, pretty great in many ways, I would say. He's at least second place in my book in terms of thought, because... You know, there's a reason why Augustine regarded Plato very highly, or the Neoplatonist himself. So there's definitely some great importance there. But I do think that Aristotle and Aquinas tend to tame the, I don't know, the mysticism of Plato a little bit because he kind of goes out there with his heavenly forms and all that. But it makes sense to, he does, what's brilliant about Aquinas is that he kind of um, makes a hybrid of those two. You know, so he takes Plato's thought of heavenly forms and puts that instead in the mind of God. Um, so there's definitely some use that we can have in Plato's own thought. And I, that's why I love Aquinas, because he synthesizes those two. I will say many something, ways. something that I do think that Plato does have, though, is that if you read the dialogues of Plato, they are actually very, very mm-hmm. entertaining to read. They're a lot of fun. But then meanwhile, if you pick up Aristotle, or something mm. I told my wife several times is, honey, if you're having a hard time sleeping at night, just pick up Aristotle and start reading it. It'll be one of the best night's sleep you've ever had. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> you know, unfortunately for Aristotle, where his works that are more like dialogues, like, like Plato's, were lost. So... But we had like Cicero, who I think said that Aristotle's writings or plays were actually exceedingly good. Unfortunately, we lost. I'm kind of sad about that because what we have right now, Aristotle's work are just lecture notes. That's why it tends to be so dry and complicated. It's because they're lecture notes. So we're actually missing a good chunk of Aristotle's thought. I wish we rediscovered that someday in the future. Probably won't happen, but I wish we did. So, yeah, but that's, that's true. It is very tough to read. Let's leap into Aquinas Finn here. And the main argument, uh, arguments mm-hmm. I want to touch on today are his five ways. So what are the five ways, first off? Mm. Okay, so the so five ways are just like summarize, and they're, they're, in the Summa, they're found in the Summa Theologica. Theologia. So they're just summar, summaries of Aquinas' arguments for God's existence that can be found all throughout his works. So you could say it's quick summaries. So a lot of times the fault of people like Dawkins, if they read these arguments, I think they're just fully-fledged arguments in themselves, but they disregard the entire context of 
Aquinas's metaphysics and his thought. They don't understand anything about his thought. So when they read it, you know, then they think, oh, this is trash. What's important when you're going into the five ways, you understand that there's summaries. There's a lot more to what Aquinas is saying. They're not just, you can't just take him merely at face value. Um, and an important thing to recognize what, what Aquinas is doing in his five ways is he takes any simple observable feature of the world, something that we experience, something that we know it's true, and then he goes into some kind of uncaused cause. He reasons from there to an uncaused cause to some ultimate explanation of things. And he's ultimately going to find that in what we call what's known as God. So the five ways are different ways in which we can demonstrate God's existence from different particular features of the world. So the first way is well known because it starts, it's probably the most well known, in fact, because it starts from change. It starts from the fact that there's change. So right now we're, time is changing. I'm saying different things. Um, the seasons are, are changing. You know, times are changing, as they say. Well, there's, there's a lot of things going on in change. We see changes in, in color, changes in temperature, changes in things from going from something living to something dying, all kinds of changes. So Aristotle, no, I mean, Aristotle and Aquinas, in fact, Aquinas is borrowing from Aristotle on this argument in particular. Um, they noticed that there's change around the world, but, you know, there has to be an explanation for how change is possible. What makes change possible in the first place? Um, so we have to get some really two key ideas in Aristotle and Aquinas' work in order to understand what he's getting at. And that's going to be act and potency. Um, so in order for account for, to account for change, we have to say, okay, what, what makes change possible? So we're going to have to go back to Parmenides. Parmenides was one of these guys who thought, well, change is an illusion because change is impossible. If we analyze it rationally using reason, we'll see it's impossible. So take the example of change. Any, any example of change, you're basically, when change occurs, you're going from something that exists, like say you have a rubber ball, that's what actually, that's what exists here and now, the rubber ball. Then you're going to something that does not exist, which is the puddle of goo. Now, Parmenides asked, well, where does that puddle of goo come from? It can't come from the ball itself because the ball is actually just, it's actually just a rubber ball. It doesn't, it doesn't have any goo in it. It's not a puddle. It's just a, a rubber ball. So it can't get that gooiness, that future gooiness cannot come from the ball itself. Because the ball itself isn't the, is the goo. <clears throat> so then the only alternative then, since we can't appeal to being, we have to appeal to something that does not exist. We have to say, oh, it just came from nothing. You know, so then that's absurd, Parmenides says. That's absurd. Um, that results in a contradiction. Because you're saying that something, something can come from nothing. And nothing has no power to create anything. Um, so from here, Parmenides says, change must be impossible. Change is impossible because it just makes no rational sense. Now, this is a pretty clever argument. I, I, really, like, I really respect Parmenides for this in some sense, but I do think it's obviously ridiculous. Every person knows change exists. You know, it's not an illusion. Um, so the first thing to point out what's wrong with Parmenides, why we know what's wrong is because illusion, the illusion itself is changing. Even if you want to say it changes illusion, illusion itself is changing. So there has to be change, and that change is going to exist in the illusion. Because illusion itself is going from one stage to another stage. <laughs> so you can't avoid change altogether. Um, so that's one thing. Why, why, that's one reason why we know it has to be false. Another reason is that when we, we go from thought to thought, you know, I'm thinking that I'm going to this next premise, I'm going to this next thought. So I already see change already. I'm experiencing change as a, 
immediate necessary fact of my experience. You can't avoid that. So that's what Aristotle pointed out. Look, you can't avoid change. It's impossible. You know it exists. It, it necessarily exists. It's common sense, as we would say. So, but Aristotle was not content with simply saying, okay, you're wrong. You know, he wants to know why is he wrong, though? What, where's the flaw in Parmenides' argument? He's trying to use reason against the senses. He's putting them against each other to show that the senses are lying and deceiving you. <coughs> so here Aristotle says, well, uh, Parmenides' error is he thinks there is only being and non-being. But that's a very simplistic way of putting it. So Aristotle introduces there are two, actually there are two types of being. There is actuality, the way a thing actually is, so that ball is actually round, it's actually bouncy, it's actually made of rubber, those are the features it actually is here and now, at this moment. But there are also the ways in which that ball potentially is. So that ball has the potential to become a pedal goo, and that potential isn't non-being, it's a real feature of the thing, it really exists. But the potential doesn't exist actually as yet, right, obviously it doesn't, otherwise the ball would be a puddle of goo here and now. But it still has that potential. It's built into the ball itself that it has that potential or possibility of becoming a puddle of goo when coming across a certain intensity of heat, for example. So that's obviously something built into the ball. So, um, so Aristotle says Parmenides is wrong. He's making just uh, probably you could say a false dichotomy between being and non-being because, in fact, there is another type of being, which is pot potential, but potency as Aquinas and Aristotle would say. So that explains that how um, he's wrong. It's not as if the puddle of goo is coming out of nothing. So it's actually coming from those potentials. That's what's happening here is that puddle of goo comes out of the potential of the ball in itself to become a puddle of goo. <coughs> so it's real. It's not a non-existent thing. But it's not actual either. It's this middle ground between being and non-being. So that helps a lot in, help in clarifying things. Now we have to ask the question, well, how then does change res get produced though? We know, okay, yeah. Maybe Parmenides is wrong then. There's there's in that third category, it's his potency that is within being. But we have to ask then, well, how does that happen? Well, in order for that ball to become a part of goo, you need some other actuality to actualize that potential. So if that, that potential is not going to actualize itself, right? It's not going to become a put of goo by on its own. Something else has to cause it to happen. So what is what kind of cause is going to be sufficient to produce that? Well, it's not going to be you're not going to be able to cause that using ice, right? You can't throw ice at it and it's going to start melting. That's not sufficient to cause it. What's going to happen, you're going to have to have something that's actually hot, <coughs> like some really hot furnace, you know, maybe even a microwave, you know? Or if you're strong enough, maybe you can throw it at the sun. Um, <coughs> so if you can do those things, then that ball will definitely melt into a pot of goo because the fire is act it's really actually hot, so it has a, it's actually hot, so then the actuality can actualize that potential in that ball to become a puddle of goo so that it becomes an actual puddle of goo. So you need actuality to make something, make a potential a real thing, to make it actual. So um, that's, that starts off the argument for change. That's how change occurs. Because whenever you see something like, for example, your wall, your white wall has the potential to be red. But what actualizes that potential is maybe you, Nick, getting some red paint and painting it. You know, you have the capacity to actualize that potential of the wall. Wait, what was that? Or throw a tomato at it. Can you repeat that? Or throw a tomato at it. Oh, throw a tomato at it, yeah. 
yeah, that's a cheap way. If you want to make it red, then yes, that's also another thing you can do. If you're mad at the wall, you know, you, you stink, you wall, so you throw a tomato at it, then that's one way to do it too. So there are multiple ways, you know, in which you can actualize the wall's potential to be red. Um, and so you always need to know this. You're always going to need some kind of actualizer, something that actualizes something. <coughs> now, Aquinas in position is that, well, you can't, this series of changes, a series of, say, you know, this ball caught, you know, this ball is painted by this guy, that guy was caused by this guy. You have a series of causes, right? Explaining why this change occurred. And you're going to need an explanation of ultimate explanation anyways of how why any change at all exists you can maybe explain local change here's change here that that change here i can explain that through science i can maybe explain that through observation i can see what happened and what what made the wall turn red is that you know um, nick was angry and decided to throw a tomato at it or something you know i can explain it during those ways but then we have to ask well, why is there any change at all why is there change and we have to have an ex ultimate explanation so that explanation can cannot go on for infinity um, so it's important to know here, because I'm going to talk about affinity, that Aquinas is all Aquinas is five ways. Don't actually depend on the beginning of, of a universe. He does not assume that the universe began to exist. In fact, he assumes the opposite. He assumes that the universe is eternal. It has always existed, as Aristotle did. Um, Aquinas at the time actually believed that you could not prove that the universe began to exist using science and philosophy. He thought that was impossible. Now, I'm not going to explain why he thought that was impossible here, but it's important to know that he did think that. So the question of infinity here is that he's not saying that you can't go through time and find an infinite series. Rather, he's saying that at every moment in which, you know, something is caused to exist, say, for example, like, um, let's say we were trying to explain why did my hot chocolate stop getting hot, become, become cold? How did my hot chocolate become cold? You know, you could say, well, you know, that's, Certain molecules in motion stop, started slowing down. There was a decrease in energy. And then there's certain laws of physics, physics that were in motion and play there that were at that time and place that actualized that potential to become cold. Um, so you have all these different explanations. But then at the, but at the very bottom of it, you're going to have to see, well, where does it come from? Then? You can't have an infinite series because if it was infinite, you wouldn't. It, there would be no change. At the end of the day, you know, for let's take an, a good example is, for example, say you're trying to um, paint a wall and you have an infinitely long brush, you know, but you try to say, OK, that brush is infinitely long. But then to say, you're trying to explain, OK, why? How, how did that wall get painted red? Well, because there is an infinitely long brush that painted it. But you have to ask, well, what, what moved the brush, though? Yeah, just because it's infinitely long does not mean, does not explain anything. It doesn't explain how that wall got painted. You need something that actualizes it. So a brush by itself has no power to cause anything. And so you need something that's going to have power in itself, just act, has pure actuality in itself to be able to explain just why that change occurred. Um, because you can't, that's what, that's what it's like. When you go on an infinite series of change, of causal series, you have an infinite causal series, you're having one thing cause another thing, but each of these things in those causal series has no power in itself, right? It's only getting power insofar as the thing before it caused it to have power. But that thing that caused it to have power only had power because the only the other thing beside it have, has power, you know? So it goes on for infinity. So you're asking, well, where did that power come from? Where did that actuality come from? You know, and so it's going to have to come from something that's purely actual, that has actuality in itself. So what we call an unmoved mover, 
or an unchanged changer. Something that changes other things without itself being changed. Because, of course, if it was, was itself changed, and you have to explain, okay, well, why was that changed? You know, and you have to have an explanation of that change. So this being, in order to have an ultimate explanation of things, it has to be an unchanged changer. And for Aquinas, this is what we know as God. So this is a summary. I'm not, uh, there's a lot of things you can say in addition to this, but this is a summary of Aquinas' existence for, um, for the first way. So this is supposed to prove that God exists from the, from the existence of change. Hi, this is Jay Warner Wallace. If you're a fan of clear thinking and of being able to make the case for what you believe as a Christian, to be able to make the case for truth, well, this is a great place to learn how to do that. This is Deeper Waters with Nick Peters. Nick has a number of great guests on his show, and I've been just honored to be one of those guests. So if you want to carve some time to be able to become a better Christian case maker, this is the way to do it right here at Deeper Waters with Nick Peters. Well, let's go back a little bit here and start talking with... Uh, okay. First off, you brought up Richard Dawkins in his book, The God Delusion. And when people talk to me about that, I say, you know, if I'm confident of anything mm -hmm. about a book, it's that Richard Dawkins has never read Aquinas. Never at all. Mm. Anything, I suspect yeah. he went and read the Wikipedia entry mm -hmm. on it. And one of the reasons that I'm sure of that is when you get to his argument... Mm -hmm about, you know, the Boeing 747 argument, the ultimate argument against God, Thomas Aquinas answers that in the very mm -hmm. next section with his arguments for divine simplicity. So, to me, it's like, mm. yeah, I don't think you ever understood Aquinas at all. But that's... Let me yep. get just... You see what you have to think about that. <clears throat> Yeah, so I definitely agree. I think even atheists, renowned atheists, well, at the time anyways, like Anthony Flew or even Benjamin Blake, they think that people like um, Richard Dawkins are an embarrassment to the atheistic community because they're so superficial and naive. They're speaking of things that are some completely outside of their expertise. So he's a biologist by trade, you know, as we know. That's where um, Richard Dawkins succeeds in. And he's a good writer in terms of making those ideas very clear but that does not mean mean that you're a good philosopher in fact as einstein said um you know physicists make poor philosophers they don't they're not thinking about these um they're thinking about these abstract ideas but they're not using the tools necessary to think clearly about those ideas and so a lot of times that's the flaw with a lot of these scientists is that they're not understanding it from a metaphysical slash philosophical perspective, and that really undermines their understanding of things. And I don't, I'm convinced that Richard Dawkins has not really read any serious philosophical work except maybe for some pop philosophy books or something of that sort. And that has no depth at all to what he's saying. If he had any more than a cursory glance reading of Aquinas, he'd realize his objections are completely... Um, straw men they're not they missed the mark you know they don't even understand what he's beginning even beginning to say so i think a lot of this unfair treatment comes from a sort of arrogance too i think i know is that you spoke um, about Dawkins seems to have a sort of sort of arrogance and thinking he can speak on that i noticed you spoke about benjamin blake in there and i take it you're referencing something you shared mm -hmm. recently his dialogue with tom jump and i still remember how tom said where, I, mean, I guess you'd have to say mm -hmm. people like Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Chris Hitchens, a few others, 
have done a lot of harm for the atheist movement. And Ben said, yeah, mm-hmm. they have. And I have to agree with him. I mean, right. I've written blog posts. Thank God for the new atheists. They've been a godsend. They've done awesome for us. I, w- I wish they'd published <laughs> more works. <laughs> That's true. I agree with that. Um, it just astounds me the arrogance in which they talk about it. You know, their 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 hatred that they have towards some non-existent being, um, or the hatred that they have somebody, you know, against against somebody who believes in those things. I think you're de- you're in a delusion, or you're stupid, you're an idiot for believing those things. And um, that's what I love about people like Benjamin Blake. We have like Anthony Flew, Michael Martin, Quentin Smith. These are actually serious, legit atheistic thinkers when or Graham Opie for example I love Graham Opie I think he's brilliant but you know I obviously think he's arguing for something that's anti-common sense nonetheless he's very smart in his own way so these are great atheist thinkers but if you look at them no one not a single one of them has any respect for someone like Dawkins Harris you know Sam Harris or any of these new atheist types because they realize just how intellectually shallow dishonest and I don't know, just hateful and spiteful their views are. When you're engaging in a conversation like this, it should be civil, it should be respectful, and that's what these atheistic philosophers, professional philosophers have. But these atheists don't. And so Tom Jupp, I think, is it says a lot about Tom Jupp if he's going to be quoting Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins as his intellectual giants. It says a lot about him. Um, it says a lot about any atheist, in fact, if anything, if they read Aquinas through the lenses of Richard Dawkins. You know, that would be like me reading about, I don't know, uh, evolution through the lenses of some, I don't know, some Christian theologian, you know, who has no understanding of evolutionary science. He didn't do any research. He just kind of let, read about it. Like, wait, it seems really stupid to say humans came from monkeys. If humans came from monkeys, then monkeys shouldn't exist, you know? If that was his argument, it's laughable um, because that's just not what evolutionary, <laughs> that's not what, how evolution works. If you have an actual understanding of evolution, if you're going to criticize evolution, criticize it with understanding, back it up with sources, have a particularly, especially have some kind of scientific background so that it would aid and add credibility to your arguments. Problem is that someone like Richard Dawkins, he's speaking completely outside of his field and acts as if he has credibility in this field. And he doesn't, completely doesn't. And any professional atheist philosopher would agree with me. So I, think, I definitely think you're right on that. Well, Gary, there's another problem with your argument, and I, I can't believe you haven't seen it, that, you know, you could get us to some sort of God, maybe, but you can't get us to the Christian God with this. So, really, what good have you done? <laughs> well, yes, this is a typical objection uh, I've always seen. So, there's a lot, a lot of work that's been done on this. So, Aquinas, for example, he talks about it. So, remember that as I talked, said in the fifth way, these are all summaries of arguments for God's existence. But they have hundreds and hundreds of pages talking about why the unchanged changer, the unmoved mover, is God in particular. Um, and so I can go through each one of those for you, just to kind of expand on that. So first, though, I want to make it clear that when we're arguing for using the five ways, we're not arguing for Christianity specifically at that time. You know, We're kind of arguing for a general monotheism which I think actually best fits Christianity, but I'll get into that once I've displayed, you know, why this unchanged changer has um, these divine attributes. So it's important to keep that in mind, though. So let's start with, like, 
um, unchanged changer. So that means, if it, by definition, if, an, if you are an unchanged changer or an unmoved mover, you're immutable. That's already a divine attribute. So we've already established that using the first way that God is an unmoved mover. Oh, He's okay. pure actuality. Gil. Because if he had any potentials in himself... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, when yeah. you're using these terms, let's make sure our audience is fair. What do we you mean when you say the term immutable? Immutable is something that cannot be changed. It cannot be changed in its essence in any in any way. Mm-hmm. So it just cannot be changed. That is a divine attribute that is commonly held by all theists and and Christianity in particular. If we want to go that route, so. But then from unchangeability, from immutability, then we have also like, you know, um, we can also derive certain other properties. So, for example, since God is immutable, he has to be immaterial. He can't be made of matter because matter, by definition, is always mutable. You can always change it and shape it in some certain way. It can, it can always be duplicated or be reduced. You know, matter is of a particular finite quantity. Um and it can be have it can have, take on new forms. For example, that rubber that rubberness that it can form a rubber ball, or it can be part of an eraser, or it can make all different kinds of shapes with it. So matter is always inherently malleable. It's always changeable. You can always do something else with it. So since God is immutable by definition, you can't change. But matter can change. Matter by definition is the very thing that makes change possible. That's what matter is. It makes change possible. Then. It can't be that this being, this unchanged changer, is material. So it has to be by that. Its being has to, by definition, be immaterial. And that's a lot already. And now that the fact that God, this being caused something to exist, you know, that takes power. Causality takes power to do. So if God's power was to change, say for example, God had a power level of nine thousand. Now, if you know Dragon Ball Z, you know what I'm talking about here. It's uh, over nine thousand. That's a high. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yep. So that's pretty high power level, you know. That's pretty powerful. Um, over nine thousand. So let's say God had that. He had nine thousand. But when he created a universe, dang, that's that's a pretty powerful move right there. So you know, his power level went down from maybe from nine thousand all the way to seven thousand because he used up his energy. So that took about two thousand power level there. Took it out from God, and so that's what happened. Um, the problem with that, though, if you think about it, that means that God actually changed. He went from 9,000 power level to 7,000 power level. He used his energy, he used some of his power, and it got depleted. And as we know, that can't be the case, though. Again, we know that he's immutable. He can't change. That's what it means to be an unchanged changer. That's what it means to be an unmoved mover, is that you can't change in your essence in any essential way. So if that's the case, then God, we know how God has to have power, because if this, whatever this being is, whatever unchanged change changer is it has to have power because it causes things to exist causes things to change so it has power by definition but that means that that power has to be unlimited it has to be without limit because otherwise god would change whenever he created something he'd go from one power level to another power level so that means he's omnipotent he can do whatever there it is logically possible to do whatever there is metaphysically possible to do god can do that that's what omnipotence means so we already have three properties right now immutability we have immateriality god's immaterial and we have omnipotence so we're already getting we have three divine attributes already just 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 that alone just to jump in so we can continue going this process Uh just jump in a bit 
Uh, I'm watching the lives right now. We've got a beautiful lady who said, What? 9,000? <laughs> she denies. <laughs> Does she deny his power? <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it's definitely 9,000 is a great power level to be at. So, <laughs> um, but anyway, so yeah, that's yeah, God's omnipotent, though. So that's even better than 9,000. That's infinite power. You know, we'd all be like, Vegeta would be absolutely blinked out of existence from that because <laughs> he'd faint and blink out of existence because that power level is too intense. Omnipotence, man. It can't get any higher than that. So omnipotence is it's all powerful. God can't lose any power. He doesn't gain any power. He has all infinite power as being this unchanged changer. So that's another thing. So the other thing to consider, too, we're going to go more further into the divine attributes. Um, we're going to consider, well, is this being all good? Um, and that will require a little bit more more development than the time I have for at the moment. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, well, I will give a summary, though. So, for Aquinas, goodness comes from being, you know? So, there are certain ways in which things are. You know, you have the ways in which, like, a tree is. So, what makes a good tree? What makes a good squirrel? What, what makes a good hamster? I used to own a hamster, so I'm just going to go with the hamster analogy. So, what makes for a healthy hamster? Healthy hamster is going to be burrowing and, you know, um, bedding. It's going to want to go at night. It, it's an nocturnal animal, so it's always awake at night. So, it always, always wants to run around. So it's going to go on its wheels and, you know, in a natural habitat, it's obviously going to want to go all around. It's going to run around and hunt for food. It's going to put food in its cheeks. It's going to eat food that's going to be beneficial to it. So a good hamster is going to be one that flourishes and does those things as the kind of thing that it is. So what's good for a hamster is going to be different from what's good for, say, a dog. Maybe a hamster can eat certain food that a dog simply can't. They have different natures. So their natures determine what's good for them to pursue what is good for their nature. So, or another thing, it's like, say, a dog came across a lion. A dog's going to run away. If it's going to be concerned for its own best interest, it's going to run away to protect its good, you know, because obviously you don't want to be attacked by a lion. Unless it's a poodle. Far away from it as possible. Unless it's a poodle or a terrier yeah, okay. or some other kind of stuff. There are some dogs <laughs> oh, I would say, no. hey, I'm going to take this lion on and win. Yeah. Then we know that something wrong. That's not good. We know that that's not good for the animal, even though they may that animal may psychologically whatever think that this is a good thing. Hey, let me play around with this lion. You know, it may think that, but it's gonna be false thinking. It's gonna end up in its death. It's gonna die a very sad death if it does that. <laughs> so we say that it the nature of it thing determines what's good for it. So for Aquinas, then um, nature goodness comes in different degrees. You know, so you have more different degrees of goodness and. Um, God being pure being, you know, is definitely going to be by, by, it's going to naturally be something that's pure good because being is what determines what is good. You know, if you think about the natures again, squirrel has its own goodness. Um, a, a, um, hamster has its own goodness because of its nature. So nature is good. Nature is good, is goodness. But the problem is that these things are all, always limited in their goodness. They always have a finite way of expressing that goodness. They, they're not, you know, not all powerful world or, or they're not pure actuality, but God and his being, his being is purely actual. So if God's being is purely actual, his good, his good, his goodness is also purely good. His, and it's infinitely good, in fact, because God's being is infinitely infinite, has no limit. So we can then derive, I think, pretty reasonably, even if you're not fully convinced by this, but reasonably, at least plausibly, we can say that this God is good, you know. 
because for Aquinas and many other thinkers, goodness and being are the same thing. You think about being, you're thinking about goodness. If you're thinking about goodness, you're thinking about being. You can't understand what's good without re making reference to that thing's being, to that thing's nature. You can only understand goodness in terms of a thing's nature. So since God is pure being, he's pure goodness. Now, that leads us then to the ultimate, more important thing, which is intellect and will. Well, okay, so this being is good, but how do we know this, this being has an intellect, you know, has a mind and has a will? And I would say we can see this evident through the effect of creation itself because there are all different kinds of, say, possible worlds that could have been created. Now, I'm going to borrow from Leibniz now here a little bit more. It's not necessarily the Aquinas way because if I was going to use Aquinas' argument, I'd have to appeal to teleology, final causality. That's a whole different thing. Um, but this is very similar in lines. Leibniz was, he was a, I guess you could say he was kind of a scholastic, but not fully. Uh, he appreciated aspects of scholasticism. But his argument is basically this. So there are a bunch of possible worlds that could have been created, but this particular world was created. Now, why? <clears throat> it can't be that this world had to be created because it's contingent. It doesn't have to exist. This world doesn't have to exist. God created this being unchanged changer. It could have created some other um, thing. So in order to create this particular world as opposed to another, um, it seems that there has to be some kind of will involved because that gives the being freedom to choose certain things. You know, he can choose this or he can choose not this or this, not this. So we want to avoid the implication that this unchanged changer had to create the universe or had to create something that changes. Because then that means that this being unchanged changer depends on the universe for it to be what it is. That's nonsense. You know, that means that this pure actual being depends on something else. It's not purely actual in itself, but it depends on the universe for itself to exist, to be the kind of thing that it is. So God's not like some machine that, that produces universes, that has to produce universes, because that's not necessary. Um, so there has to be um, some explanation for why this universe exists rather than another, and it's going to come a result in the will. It's going to result in understanding. So in order to create a universe, you have to be able to understand what it is you're creating. You have to have knowledge. Um, so whatever this being unchanged changer is, it's going to have to have understanding. It's going to have to have a will in order to create anything at all. Um, because it can't be created necessarily by its own nature. It can't be created necessarily because then that means that the universe is necessary, which we know is false. The universe isn't necessary. Through the first way, we see that the universe could have been otherwise. It's change. Change doesn't have to exist. Could have been some different kind of change. Could have been no change at all. Um, so from there, we can then infer that this being has an intellect and a will. But then you have to ask, well, does that mean, that doesn't necessarily mean it's an omniscient, does it? And then we ask that question. And we, I think we can prove that it has omniscience then using the same reasoning as I, I argue for immutability in life. Because if God increased or decreased in his knowledge or lost some knowledge, then that means he's learning. That means he's, he's changing, you know. He's changing from knowing this to not knowing that, to, from not knowing something to knowing something. That's a change. And so if he's, if God's changing, that means he needs an explanation for why he's changing rather than not. And that's not plausible. It can't be because by definition, we already established through the first way, the unchanged changer just doesn't change. It's immutable. So that means, so since we know that it's immutable, and since we know that it has to have knowledge and it has to have a will, we then know that it has to be omniscient and it has to be omnipotent. It has to be all good, only benevolent, basically. You know, it has all these properties that we call God. And so this actually flows quite nicely. That's what I love about Aristotle and Aquinas' system of thought. 
is because if you study all their philosophy, everything leads naturally to this holistic conclusion of God. It isn't as if we're just making properties up. It's, it's logically follows, given what an unchanged changer is, that this unchanged changer has these divine properties. It's not some, not some made-up fiction. It's something we made to defend it. So now we have a general monotheistic God. I think that does a lot for us, though. It eliminates thousands and thousands, if not millions of religions that deny otherwise, that seem to have no notion of a supreme God, of a monotheistic God with these properties. Because if you have a religion, and you're proclaiming that this religion is enlightened, you know, that this has some truth, and yet this religion neglects to know the deepest truth about the world, which is God himself, that God created the universe, what does that say about that religion? It says that that religion is not... It may have some truth to it. I think all religions have some truth to them, but that does not mean that it's, it's the religion that has ultimate truth. You know, that, that's what we're seeking as human beings, an ultimate explanation of why we're here. What is our purpose? What is our ultimate purpose? What, how should we live? <laughs> and so it eliminates all its religions because it denies that there are these, go- these gods are actually really gods. If anything, they're just lesser beings, that created beings, if anything. And not really if gods. I could there's jump in here God, a little bit, Gil, with um, this. Yahweh. <laughs> It, it, when mm-hmm. see just a little hint of what's coming up next week, we're going to be talking about Mormonism some, and I think Mormonism is an example. Mm-hmm. Of that. I mean, it's a worldwide faith, but its concept of God has this saying, you know, as God is, man once mm-hmm. was, as man as <clears throat> man is, God once was, as God mm-hmm. is, man may become. That God became God eventually, and mm-hmm. that's a notion that to mm-hmm. a Thomist is absolutely repugnant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what bothered me since I'm coming I'm from Utah right now, so that's what I see very commonly. In fact, that interesting experience where I was explaining uh, one of my favorite arguments is in fact Leibniz's cosmological argument. Basically arguing for contingency. So I explained this to one of these Mormon girls and she loved it. She actually thought this was genius. She was really excited when I was telling her. She's like, oh my gosh, I didn't know you could do that. I didn't know you could prove God's existence like that. So when she was hearing this, she was hearing it in a way where it seemed to be affirming her, her belief system. But then when I started explaining what this God must be like, especially the immaterial component, like I was telling you, it can't be material because matter by definition is changeable. Um, by nature, it's changeable. And so when I told her that, then she started getting a little worried there. She started seeing the logic of my arguments, but then she didn't want to accept them because this would fire her entire belief system. So she got a little worried and she was like, you can see in her face, like, okay, I don't like this anymore, you know? And so at that moment, you you know, you see, you see, you see that they have to cut, you have to stop something there. They don't like philosophical arguments of that, of that nature because it destroys their entire worldview. And it, I think that says a lot about the Mormon religion. It just eliminates it, though, if anything. Because they have a false view of God, who God is. If, if if God really is the one who revealed himself through this religion, he will reveal himself as immaterial because we know that through general revelation. We know that through creation, what his invisible attributes are, that they're not material. They're immaterial. And if any religion denies this, then it must not come from a divine source. It must be a man-made source that, that made these claims because God is not going to give out false information. He's not a lie. He's all good. He's all He's perfect. You know, he's not going to do any of those things. He's going to speak the truth. So then we're going to try and look for religion then that's going to affirm those values. It's going to affirm that. And what's super important is that for Aquinas, he believes in divine simplicity. So you mentioned that earlier. Divine simplicity is a really crucial notion because um, the idea is that 
It isn't as if God has these distinct parts. He has no parts. He's not made of any parts. Because if you have parts, you need an explanation for why this part rather than another part, you know? Um, and it's not as if you could have an omnipotent being that doesn't have omniscience or immutability or immateriality. You know, if you're coming from a more personal, theistic personalism, which is the idea that God's just like us, just, you know, infinitely more, um, you're going to have this idea that, you know, the divine attributes that God has just is just like us, exactly like us, identically to us, just in an infinite way. But Aquinas denies that. He says that we can't make God just like us. God's not a creature. Yeah. God's a, God's a being. It's God's being itself. He's not a being. He's being itself. You know, he's pure being. And you can't create God into some parts. You know, you can't reduce him to parts. You can't reduce him to something like a person. Um, that just robs God of who he is. So the idea for Aquinas, when he talks about divine simplicity, which makes it a little difficult for people to understand, is that God's divine goodness just is his being. And his being just is his wisdom. His, and his, his wisdom just is his power. And this follows very, they're kind of identical attributes for Aquinas. They're not, it's not as if you can have omniscience without, you know, having omnipotence. They both entail each other. So uh, I think that's the brilliant idea of it because, you know, it helps us explain why these ideas, if, you ha if there is any being that has any one of those attributes, if it has omnipotence, you can infer immediately from the fact that it has omnipotence that it has all these other divine attributes. That's necessarily the case if you're using Thomistic reasoning. Um, and we can see that clearly. So that makes it very um, clear that God has all these attributes. And so God, it just is. He just is being itself. And now that's a very, that's a very radical claim. It's a very radical claim, but it's, it's hugely important because it means that God's divine properties aren't like separate from each other and just happen to be jumbled together like marbles. Like you put a bunch of marbles together or a bunch of items in the basket. And it's okay, let me go to, or you go to a buffet. Like, I like this idea. Let me put this here and let me put this in my in my uh, plate. You know, God's not like a, a jumbled mess of properties that just happen to be loosely connected to each other. They're necessarily connected to each other. In fact, they're identical to each other. That's how tightly connected those properties are. It isn't like a buffet. We're trying to create our own God at a buffet, create your own God buffet or something. You know, so that's what makes it so distinct is that we eliminate any of this buffet idea of God, any of this personalism idea of God. And make into this radically distinct being that's uniquely unique being, as one of these philosophers put it. Um, Bill Valicella, he has a he has a blog called Matter of Philosophy. He says a uniquely unique being. Um, so God's unlike anything else. So we have to always keep that in mind. So I think we're going to look for a religion. If we're going to find a religion and God reveals himself through that religion, how is he going to reveal himself? He's going to reveal himself as a uniquely unique being. Something that just is. Something that just is being itself. And what I like about Christianity in particular, especially this, this whole, is that it reveals God as I am. You know, when, when, when Moses asked, who am I supposed to say who you are to the Egyptians? Who are you? Because I am what, who I am, says the scripture. You know, God could have used a name. Oh, my name is Job, you know, or my name is this. He didn't use that kind of name. He didn't use some kind of other, like, other example in life. Well, I'm just like you. I'm, I'm a human being, just super more, supremely more powerful, like the Mormonist idea. You know, I'm just like you. I just became supremely powerful. I became a god, you know, in my past. Nothing like that. I am who I am. There is no category, no other, you, no other location. God couldn't use a geographic location. He couldn't use the uh, name like last name Sanders. I come from this family. I come from this line of gods or something. He couldn't use any of that because he just is self-explanatory. He just is what he is. He's being itself. 
that affirms that idea I am who I am. That, that idea affirms greatly coincides, if anything, with the philosophical idea of what we discovered right now through philosophy through the first way, through divine simplicity. God just is being. And we find that Christianity, it's very distinct, it's very powerful. It's the divine name, Yahweh. I am who I am. It's at the center, the heart of Christianity. You know, and so it, it just makes it so much more radical is that if God was to reveal himself, he's going to reveal himself in that way. He's going to reveal himself truly. And that's exactly what we find in scripture. And that's why I think it's so well, it coincides with Christianity so well, because we see Jesus embodying that, we see I am, you know, there's a whole, um, everything all throughout scripture, we see that I am terminology being used. And it really, um, it fits so well. Uh, it, it, it provides evidence, at least initial evidence. I have to provide more, I think, to show that Christianity is true. But I think it provides reasonable evidence for Christianity being true. Unlike, you know, um, Islam, these other religions who are just back, who are just kind of copying some of Christianity and just twisting it to their own means, their materialistic wealth and whatever materialistic gain that Muhammad had in mind. Um, that's 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 is the Islamic religion. But it's God in particular. You know, he reveals himself through Christianity that way, and that's incredible. That's never happened. You don't see that in any of the religious texts. It's unprecedented, you know. And this is before philosophers. This is before Aristotle. This is before Plato. This is how God revealed himself as. You know, and I think that's just a strong evidence, at least initial evidence, that this, that the Christian religion is truly from God. Let's uh, explore one other aspect of God this yeah, way we, that we might have a hard time understanding as well. That's his uh, <laughs> impassibility. The idea that, you know, mm -hmm. God doesn't really have emotions, which is very hard for a lot of us to understand mm. because, you know, you read in the Old Testament and so many times it seems like God is grieved, we've broken the heart of God, all these kinds of things. And mm. if he's impassable, we can think, oh, so God just doesn't care what we do, right? Hmm... Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the one objection to divine simplicity of doubt. It's pretty popular. And I think that's also mis a misunderstanding because it's not that God has no passions. It's more like God has perfect passions, unchanging passions, perfect, unchangeable passions. It may be hard for us to grasp because this God's a radically different kind of being than us. There are similarities. There's a, that's why Aquinas holds to the doctrine of analogy. That there are not there are ways in which we're analogously like God, but where it's not it's not as if we're the same identically. We're not the same. Just God has more power than us, or something like that. Ident we're identical. We just God has more the properties that we have. That's not how it is. Like you know, theistic personalism holds. So when it comes to impassibility, it's very important to understand that it's not saying that God has less than what we have. It's saying that God has what we have, but it's in a perfectly different way and in a perfectly in a perfect way. You know. So when he has passions, it's like. Um, these passions of is our love, joy. These things are perfect to have, and God has them in perfect abundance. You know, He's not like some joyless, unhappy, or like neutral being, just some rational being, like Spock, perhaps. You know, completely rational, who's doing making the right decisions, like some kind of computer or something. God has these passions, but these are perfect passions. That's the important thing to realize: is that um, when we're reading Scripture too, we say God is grieved, God is sad. These are not that God's changed per se. It's very important because it says in Scripture, God does not change his not mind. But in our case, it does seem like God has changed his mind. But God has always had this. Um, it makes the divine simplicity hard to understand. But it, it, God has always had these um, thoughts about these particular reactions. So 
you know, if God has these thoughts, for example, in his head about sin, that would always grieve him. That would always can be some sin would always grieve him. It's not something that's changed in him. God was grieved about sin one time and then he wasn't. Rather, it's more like Cambridge properties. They would, would call Cambridge properties in philosophy. God doesn't change, but our relation to him does change. So, for example, like imagine a pillar and you're, you're, you're on the left side of the pillar and then you decide to move on the right side. Now, you're on the right side of the pillar, but has a pillar changed? No. Even though your relationship to the pillar has changed in some way, the pillar itself has not changed. It's remained exactly where it is. So our responses to God make some kind of different, like erupt in some, in some ways, different effects in God. But God himself has not changed. So analogy I like to think too is like, say, for example, I had a really big hammer and um, I was going to throw that hammer down. So there are two different objects you can put on in, um, below that hammer so that it gets, so that it, it, gets uh, it gets hit by it. You can put like a piece of rubber or you can put in like some hard clay. Now, if the hard clay goes on, you put the hard clay there, that hard clay will break immediately. So it's immediately a different effect there, right? It has, it's immediately broken. But say you have something like rubber. Rubber is just going to bounce right off. It's not going to get destroyed from that. So that's how similar how I imagine God's love, for example, to be like, or how any of God's attributes and how he interacts with the world. That God's power and love is the same. But for different people who have different hearts, their they're, they're, they're effects, how they experience God's love is going to be different. Some people are going to experience it as, as God's wrath, as God's justice, like the clay, hardened clay. If you harden your heart, God's love is going to be erupt as God's wrath. It's going to come out of that way because you're rebelling against him. Not because that that's what God wants. It's because that's how you're responding to God. So you, when you respond by hardening it, what's going to happen? It's going to have, what's going to happen is that you're going to get broken to shredding into pieces and under that hammer. But if you soften your heart with love for God, you're going to take that hammer as this, like, absorb it. And it's going to become something that's going to make you, I don't know, you're going, to have, you're going to be empowered by it. You're going to be enamored by it because it's going to build you up. It's going to shape you. It's going to structure you, you know. So if you're like the potter. So it depends on your our responses. So that's what Cambridge properties are like. That's why there are different effects. Even though God is the same, you know, and his response has is still out of ultimately instead of scripture, God is love. And God's love is going to come across as wrath to those who have hardened hearts, but not to those who don't have hardened hearts. So there's different responses there. So that we call Cambridge properties. So it's not as if God's emotionless. You know, God really does have some passions, but they're not, it's hard to explain them because God's so radically different from us. You know, and that's to be expected though. That's the great thing I love about divine simplicity. Because divine simplicity embraces and recognizes our limitations. I'd like to remind everyone at this point you're listening to Deep of Water's podcast. Nick Peter is your host. I have Gero Sanders with me on my show. We're talking about Thomas Aquinas. But here next week, like I said, we're going to be talking about Mormonism. And I've got Tom Hobson on my guest, pastor who's worked 
think about 40 years or so with Mormons. He's got an interesting book, The Historical Jesus and The Historical Joseph Smith. <laughs> we're going to be comparing these two figures of history together. But for now, let's get back to Gear Sanders talking about <laughs> Aquinas here. Now, here, I'd like to kind of go back to, again, the first way a little bit here. And one thing I think we should say is, you know, it's called yeah. the argument from motion. Okay. But, geez, Garrett, Isaac Newton mm -hmm. told us what motion is and how we can explain it. Why should we listen to Aquinas mm -hmm. instead of Newton on motion? Well, first, we know that Newton's wrong about many things. That's why we have quantum mechanics. So it's important to keep that in mind. Newton wasn't right about many things. And so, obviously, he's respectable and we should respect his thought. But there's a lot of things that Newton was actually wrong about. He approximated truth to some extent, but he didn't really fully grasp that. So the second thing to point out, too, is that Newton was talking about local motion. So what that means is that we're moving from one point to another point, that kind of motion, that kind of change. The motion we typically understand, like your car, or I'm running, I'm, I'm, I'm in motion when I'm running. That car is in motion when it's driving, right? We understand motion in that sense. But for us, uh, Aristotle and Aquinas, they understood motion in a much more general and broad sense. So motion for them isn't just moving from one point to another, even though it includes that, but it also includes, in addition to that, changes like, for example, changes in color, changes in temperature, changes in substance, you know, or changing from one thing to another kind of thing. Um, like, for example, hydrogen and oxygen becoming water, you know, joining together to become water, that's a substantial change. You have these different types of changes. So even if we, even if we, I do grant that this type of motion that Newton was talking about there um, was you know, something can stay in motion for eternity without being moved by something else. That was the idea. It can continue moving and moving um, without being moved by something else. Even if we accept that I know that idea, it still doesn't rob us of the, of the common sense idea that these other things require explanations for existence. You know, like the uh, temperature, changes in temperature, that requires some kind of move or some kind of change here. Um, but also the third thing to, to understand, too, is that Newton was talking about highly abstract things and the mathematical cal calculation that just because you're imagining it in a mathematical sense does not necessarily mean that that's possible for example you start to ask even though if you want to we could grant for example that a thing could continue moving moving on endlessly but you can still ask and reasonably so what started that motion in the first place you know you can say well what is starting what started that motion it has to be some kind of first mover even then even if you want to say it continues moving on endlessly that doesn't necessarily mean that it's doing so without a first mover. That just begs the question against the Thomist. So Newton actually proves no such thing. He's not pro He never proved for anything that he, that there was no first mover. He simply said that there is this move. This motion can go on endlessly. Um, and then the, I think the last thing that could be said again, and emphasizing the mathematical aspect of it, is mathematical models, especially as physics goes. If you go in deeper into physics, you get deeper into more abstract things. And so when you go into abstract, like can you have a, an environment that's frictionless? What would happen in a, in a frictionless environment? You want to ask these questions in physics. But a lot of times they're kind of done through very abstract mathematical models. They're not really considering these things from a metaphysical perspective. They're really considering them purely from an abstract kind of mathematical sense, quant uh, quantities. So if you're just considering it from just that perspective, it's going to seem like, oh, yeah, well, it is possible for something to stay in motion or is this possible for it to be this way? Um, if you're just considering it in that sense. But there's no reason to think that, you know, abstract mathematical quantities say anything in, 
like anything concrete about nature itself. You know, you may be able to see certain effects from mathematical analysis, but you're not going to be able to uh, determine what is in the nature of that thing. What's the concrete nature that's exhibiting those effects? You know, so that's what happens. You can, so you can have a hyper-focused way of analyzing things like physics does, and you can not even, you can even do it in such a way that you're not even regarding anything about causality. You're not even considering causality. You're not even considering all these different aspects, these different complications about how reality really is and how necessarily is. You can just strip those things away and just start focusing on one isolated uh, feature of the world. But just because you can isolate and talk about one isolated feature of the world does not necessarily mean that it's therefore possible for this thing to have no cause or it had to, be in a, to be without a first mover. So a new net established no such thing. <clears throat> and in fact, it's quite reasonable to ask again, why did that motion even take place in the first place? Why is there any movement at all? What started that motion? And to say it just, it just does, this is to beg the question. Well, let's also ask about another way, because I think it's one that's commonly misunderstood. That's Aquinas' fifth way. And someone like Richard Dawkins, and sadly someone mm-hmm. else like a person to say, well, this is just intelligent design, and that's all it is, and whether or not that's true or not, I mean, it is Aquinas really arguing from intelligent design in the fifth way? Oh, absolutely not. Yeah, that's definitely something that proves absolutely, without a doubt, that Dawkins has no idea what he's talking about. It's <laughs> um, not an argument from like William Paley's um, argument from design. Nothing even like it. Nothing even close to it. Um, what Aquinas is doing here is he's talking about like some feature of the world, some kind of regular um, causality. So like, say, for example, regular pot- pattern causality, say like a, a match, you know, what happens when you strike that match? Well, usually it's going to, it's going to um, light up. It's going to have, a, there's a flame will show up there, right? It's going to start having fires. Some, so that's what regularly happens whenever you strike a match. And that's called what causal regularity. That's what we call causal regularity. So, um, in order to account for that causal regularity, Aquinas and Aristotle, they were at, they asked, well, what accounts for that? Why is it that whenever a match head is struck, that it tends to emit flames? What happens? How does that, how does that occur? And the best explanation for that is going to be that there's something in the nature of that, of that uh, match that points toward emitting flames as it's, as it's one of its, um, and you know, one of its final causes, one of its purposes. Or let's take a more, um, down to earth example too. Let's say like, you know you have um, a heart. You're or you have a you're a scientist trying to analyze a heartbeat, and so you're trying to analyze so what what's why is it so why is it that the heart consistently beats at this particular you know rate? Why does it beat consistent at that rate? Um, and you're gonna ask, well, what does it do? What's the purpose of the heart? What's what's it for? What's its function? And it's perfectly natural to ask that question. You're gonna say, well, the purpose and the function of the heart is to pump blood. Now, that's true regardless of whether you believe in evolution or regardless of whether you believe that God did it. You know, see, what Aquinas is doing, he's not saying that, um, he's not saying that this is intelligent design. He's simply asking, well, what is it for? How does it exhibit this kind of causal regularity? What accounts for that causal regularity? It's going to be something intrinsic to the nature of that thing itself. That, na- that heartbeat has a, that heart has as its natural end as its final cause um, p- pumping blood into the system. That's its purpose. That's reg- true regardless if evolution is true or not. And uh, so evolution actually makes no significant difference here. Um, the question is that it's still going to be causal regularity, even if, you, even if you can't battle through accidental 
processes. If you want to do natural selection, it's still going to be the case that that's what it's for. And that causal regularity is best explained by the fact that, you know, built in the nature of that thing is pointed toward that particular effect. So in some way, like say for an archer, for example, it's pointing its arrow toward a certain mark. That it's direct. That arrow is directed at that end, that particular um, point. So too, we can think of a heart as being pointed at a certain effect. It, what it's pointed toward, built into its nature, is going to be to the effect of pumping blood. So Aquinas notices this. There's a lot of causal regularity. There's enormous causal regularity if you think about it. It's how everything works together. The ecosystem, the life system, how the bees and the birds, how they complement each other in just a staggering way. And if the bees were gone, there'd be significant problems in our um, ecosystem, our ecoculture. There would be a significant problems that would result from that. So there's immense causal regularity here. And so we have to ask ourselves, well, that causal regularity comes from its internal nature, yes. But usually when we're talking about final ends, when we're talking about like, you know, something being directed at something, that's usually what a mind does, right? When you're building a house, for example, you have something in mind. It exists in your mind in a sense. You have this image of what you want the house to look like, a blueprint, and so you develop it in that in that way. So that's what you're directed towards. Now, these um, these things like plants and um, parts, they don't think like that. They don't think like that. They don't have thoughts. You know, it's not like they're thinking about pumping blood, and it's not like they have any reason. They're reasoning it through it or something like we do. They have just have it built in. It's it's like an instinctive thing. But how can nature by itself point to something that doesn't exist? You know, there has to be. What the idea is that there has to be some mind that's governing this causal regularity that we see in the world. Not that this intelligent designed. Not talking about how intelligent designed it is. Not talking about complexity. Nothing to do with the bacterial flagellum or whatever you want to talk about, Michael Beaky and stuff like that. Nothing to do with that. It's more just about causal regularity in general. Anywhere you can take the most simple patterns of causal regularity, like one atom bumping into another atom. You know, it has may produce some certain particular charge, say. You know, if a particular if it if one atom bumps on another atom and produces that charge, well, why does it consistently produce that? You know, it doesn't even have to appeal to design. Just something as simple as any causal effect pattern, any effect, any pattern of causes. What is why does that pattern exist? You know, so it has nothing to do with that. And I think that's what Aquinas is getting at is that you need a mind to govern all this causal regularity to direct things toward their proper ends. Otherwise, there wouldn't be any causal regularity. So that's the gist of his argument there. And so that's why he thinks it has to be a mind. So I think something I can gather from what you're saying also is that <clears throat> on this point, at least for a theist, the question of evolution is really moot, isn't it? Yeah. Mr. Dawkins' point is moot, if that's what you're saying. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, because... Yeah, so it doesn't really matter whether evolution or anything is these things are true. For the theists, yeah, it doesn't really ultimately matter. We still need a mind, mm. a divine mind. <laughs> yeah, I, I think... Because in order to have any cause of regularity, think about it, natural selection or even even mutations, for example, all of that requires some kind of cause of regularity because you're assuming certain processes are in motion, some kind of regularity, some processes there that selects for certain features. And that assumes that there is causal regularity. So you, even evolution itself is going to require, you know, a divine mind to account for it. So that's why evolution isn't relevant to the theist. And I think Edion Gerson even argued that evolution is inherently teleological because it aims at an end, not consciously, mm -hmm. but it aims at one, the survival of the fittest. 
So if you have mm-hmm. evolution, you automatically have mm-hmm. teleology. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Let's talk a little so bit. I think also. the moderns, though, they typically too quickly reject final consequences. Let's talk yeah, a little bit ahead. also about the fourth way of Aquinas, because I understand some people mm-hmm. also get that one <clears throat> confused. I mean, Aquinas talks about, you know, the most good, most perfect of these events. <laughs> we are to go back to mm. picking on Richard Dawkins again. He says, so, could we have some, like, the smelliest? Would that work at all? I mean, to some people, that might sound convincing, because if all <laughs> Aquinas is doing is taking adjectives and adding superlatives to them, saying, well, God has to be that. Why can't we do it with smelliest? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's what uh, that's an objection that Richard Dawkins kind of puts forth. What about the perfect maximum of conceivable smelliness, or the stinkiest possible being conceivable? You know, wouldn't that be great? <laughs> and uh, I think it's a funny objection in some ways, but it's also because it's ridiculous because it doesn't obviously doesn't get to the heart of it. So I think um, one of the ways in which we can try to clarify this is to recognize that. Thomas Aquinas isn't talking about any, just any particular material feature that can have different grades of perfection. So, okay, let me, let me just go back to this argument because maybe people are not aware of what this argument is. So the fourth way is basically a grades of perfection argument for God's existence. It's the most platonic argument for God's existence, if anything, um, that Aquinas has. And that's probably why, in part, it tends to confuse people. People are very mystified by it. Um, in fact, it's probably one of the most, it's the argument that probably mystified me the most when I first um, started studying Aquinas. I was like, uh, I don't really get this. But as time goes on, I've definitely understood a lot more. I've come to appreciate a lot more of what it's saying. Because take, for example, like we're, try, we're trying to compare, you know, what's line is straighter, you know. Uh, we have a bunch of lines and we have one that's very crooked lines. And how do we know a line is crooked without making reference to some kind of standard, right? We need some kind of standard to make reference to it by. What does straightness mean? Um, so we have a straightness, and that notion comes from an understanding of straightness. There's, there's no, there's no jagged lines. You know, it's just completely straight. Um, it can't get any more fundamental than that. So that we have a standard because we understand what we understand mathematically through our reason what a straight line is. That's the standard, and we, we can compare it to any of these other lines to that standard because we have that. So, I, or take for example a triangle. Again, it's a perfect example that my professor Fazer always uses is, you know, you can compare what a triangle is better or worse by just how much it approximates with the essence of a triangle. So, you know, say, for example, we had a triangle hastily drawn and scribbled on a wall and it wasn't completed. Like at the very tip of it, you know, that one of the edges was not complete. So you see a little gap there and it's, it's very wiggly. Obviously, that's not a good triangle, whereas compared to a triangle, say, where I'd carefully use a ruler and trace it out and make sure all the edges are closed because by definition, triangularity, something that's a triangle is a three closed plane figure that adds up to 180 degrees. You know, that's what it is. And so the, the, the more I closely approximate that through my drawing, the better that it is, the better that it is. So we have some kind of standard to appeal to, which is triangularity, to understand which triangle is better, which triangle is worse. We need that to have any notion or understanding of things. Now, when Aquinas was explaining this argument, he did use another argument, which is fire. He's, uh, he says heat in particular. He said, okay, there's, there are things that are more harder than other things. There are things that are less hot. You know? 
So he thought that on uh, the max, the fire was the hottest thing there was. So that, that back in the day with his physics, but we know that's false, but back in the day, that's how he thought of it. And so he thought that fire was a standard source of heat, of all heat. And so he reasoned that, you know, there must be heat, but obviously he didn't, he only used this way to understand where we're getting at with God's existence. Cause he wouldn't, he obviously doesn't go to this and say, okay, because there's different grades of heat, different degrees of heat. Therefore it has to be, God has to be maximally hot. Like this fire, massive, massive, infinite fireball or something. He didn't reason that way, even though it's pretty obvious to some people, who, like apparently Richard Dawkins, that that's the case. So that tells us something right there. Because if Aquinas has not seen that, then he's a very smart guy. He's not dumb. He's going to be like, oh, yeah, actually, I just decided not to. You know, I, I realize that my argument entails is that God have to be a maximally hot being. But I just didn't, I just didn't consider it, you know, uh, or I just didn't put it down. So that doesn't make any sense. So what Aquinas is doing <coughs> is not to take the mundane features of life, like stinkiness, um, heat, or all these other, like, greenness. You can take maximal greenness or whatever, <coughs> and attribute that to God. Rather, he's focused more on the general features of being in, ge in general. You know, just things like being, like, goodness, nobility, um, you know, something that is about, about being itself in general. Things that all things share in common. So, for example, you have heat and cold. Well, what do they have in common? Well, they have certain, like, molecules in common, for example, you know? But they're not, they're what's, they, what makes them distinct is that their mo molecules are in motion at different levels of motion, say. That's why one thing's hotter than one thing's colder than another, because <coughs> the, the particles are moving in different ways and different intensities. So that's what accounts for the differences. But they're, what they have in common is that they have being, and they're both made of particles. They have some kind of particles. So what makes those particles is that it just has actuality. It has goodness in some sense. Because remember, everything that has, anything has a being of any sort has goodness in itself. So these are what Aquinas calls the transcendentals. So goodness, truth, <coughs> um, nobility, perfection, they're basically all basically the same thing. Um, you have less good, you can have more true, more noble, more, more nobility, just basically perfection. So these are all aspects of being itself in general now when we ask those questions of well okay so how do we get this notion of this being is less good that's being is more good well you don't have any notion of goodness at all if you don't have some ultimate source of goodness some ultimate being which all goodness tends to derive from you know they can think of this in fact it's similar and interestingly enough at least to me from what i've read it's interestingly similar to like the moral argument in some way and <laughs> that you can't have any notion of any goodness at all Without some absolute standard of goodness, you know, and so that's basically what Aquinas wants to say. He's using and saying every all these different beings they participate, they participate or get their being or power from God Himself, and they need that in order to have any goodness at all, because their goodness is always finite, limited, you know. And so when we say, okay, this is more or less good, we have to make reference. Okay, what is it more or less good in reference to? Because if we didn't have a notion of God, for example, we didn't have this notion of perfect being. We would say that, say, for example, that, um, I don't know, if we came across a hot being, say, fire, we'd say at this temperature, 80 degrees is maximally hot. That's as hot as it could possibly get, you know. Uh, but then that that would be wrong because, you know, we'd, we'd have, we know they could get hotter. It's like science discovers that. Or even potentially we can conceive of something hotter than that. Um, so if we compare ourselves, goodness, to just what we have here, 
then we're going to think, oh, that's as good as it gets. But that's obviously not true. Goodness, that's why we say it's more or less. We couldn't have more, we couldn't say something's more or less good if we didn't have some absolute standard to compare it to. That's what we're saying. This is more or less good compared to this standard. So that's what Aquinas means, is that he wants us to recognize that. I do happen to believe there is such a thing as a Max Murray hot being. I'm, I'm married to her, so I know there's a Max Murray hot being. <laughs> okay. Oh, I see, I see. Well, okay, okay. Maybe you're one of those special exceptions, I suppose, huh? <laughs> Hi, this is Justin Brawley of the Unbelievable Radio Show and Podcast, recommending another podcast to you. Nick Peters is a deep thinker, a friend of mine, and he has an inspiring faith. So you should listen to him and his excellent guests on the Deeper Waters show. So keep going deeper and keep getting uh, wetter, I guess. Blessings, Nick. Keep up the good work. Yeah, I like my new one at this point, Velveta. You're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. Everything we do is supported by listeners like you. And I'd like to encourage you to please go to our website, deeperwatersprojects.com, and there's a link on the side. It says, help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. And if you click on that link, and you get taken to the ministry of Mike Lacona, Risen Jesus. You're at the right place. Those are my in-laws. So you make a donation, and you make, and then you get in touch with me, or my wife, Allie, the Max Marty Hot Being, or Michael Debbie. And say, hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. We will give that donation. It will be tax deductible. You can also uh, buy some ebooks that I've written. Hopefully by this time, Dawkins and the Dark will be out. A look at his book, Outgrowing God. <laughs> and I've also got a Creed will be ages. The Apostles Creed and Today's Christian. <laughs> and you can also uh, um, <laughs> buy some that I've co-written. Such as... Oh, defining or contextualizing inerrancy <laughs> for mentioned Boris project God um <clears throat> God and evil I think it was called I uh, <clears throat> we had got a book on natural evil it, it's kind of escaping right now it's debated if an atheist Christian answers situations questions there was a few out there and if you can't do any of these just please go on iTunes and leave a pause review of a deeper waters podcast. Now, give us there any organization or charity you'd like to see people donate to? Hmm. That's actually a very good question. Well, um, so I don't have anything particularly in mind, to be honest, at the moment. <laughs> it's not, I guess, there are definitely, there are definitely charity organizations I have in mind, but I just, it's, like O-Town, for example, like that's one of my friend's companies. He's trying to do some business in helping out the community here. But we usually accept donations of, of like, what we do is very specific type of donations, like donations of fruit, from, of fruit and stuff, like fruit trees that we need. So that's what we're focusing on, trying to help the community. Um, I think one of the best donations, obviously, is just prayer. You know, <laughs> we all need prayer. We all need that in our life. We all need to donate that into other people's lives because... This world needs more of that. It needs more of that love and tender care. And prayer is one of the best ways of doing that. 
Okay. okay. You know, let's get back as well. So. Let's get back to the topic now. Something you said. <laughs> I remember something else you said. You know, Aquinas was wrong about what was maximally hot. Okay, but you know, a lot of people look at Aristotle the same way. They look, Aristotle's physics were way, way mm. off. So if we can't trust him in his physics, mm-hmm. why should we trust him and then in turn Aquinas in his metaphysics? Hmm. Well, I think the answer lies in the name itself, metaphysics. It goes beyond physics in some way. So, you know, it goes beyond what any physics could tell us, for example, when we're talking about active potency. No matter how the particular physics is, you can say, um, you can even have a totally wor- a different world in which the laws of physics are different, like everything's backwards. Maybe instead of something, you know, whenever something cold hits a cup of coffee, it turns hot. I don't know. You know, it could have some kind of completely backwards physics that, at least according to our understanding, it just wouldn't make sense. But nonetheless, what's happening there, even in that different law of physics, is that you're having active potency, regardless. There's some potency being actualized there. In some strange way to us, it's strange, admittedly to us, it would be strange. But nonetheless, there's something there that's happening that's very relevant to what Aristotle and Aquinas teaching in regards to metaphysics, because that's because metaphysics transcends physics. Any so what metaphysics does is that it's, it's asking a question. What does there need to be in order for there to be any physical world at all? So that's a very important question. What is the baseline that any physical world has to be like? And so that's why metaphysics is so crucial, is that why it can still withstand any changes in physical discoveries, is because it's asking a far more fundamental question. It's not asking, it's not making suppositions, it's not making claims about how maybe opium causes induces sleep it's not making any kind of grand claims about that it's not making any claims about you know how this, this particular process works it's rather simply saying something a lot more general a lot more ultimate it's making a question of what is it that a physical world has to be well it has to be changeable first off in order to be a physical world it has to be made of matter of some sort it has to have some kind of active potency and if it's going to have any kind of causal regularity it's going to have to have some kind of final cause teleology and built into its nature you know it's going to have all those different features those apply regardless of what physical world you imagine any physical world you imagine is going to be consistent with those facts and so metaphysics is importantly distinct because it's it's talking about usually talks about necessary truths so i think this has to be the case now physical laws and all these different things they could have been different and everyone acknowledges that but there's something, what, what is it that every, every, every physical world has to have? What is it that every physical world has to be like? That's the question that metaphysics is asking. Or what is it, what, what is it, have, what causes this to exist? And so physics doesn't give us all the answers because physics by definition is just studying physical properties, physical laws, physical processes. Um, it's studying a very specific region of reality. So it would be like me saying, you know, oh, I don't um, say I have a metal detector, you know, and I was just using that metal detector to make discoveries about certain types of metals and stuff. And then I said, oh, well, you know, look at all these metal discoveries that I made. So I guess we don't have to pay attention to any of these other devices that discovers plastic or sand or anything because my device is the most important, you know. And that, that, that would be a complete misunderstanding of how each of these devices work. A metal detector, a plastic detector, whatever you want to imagine, each one has a particular role in discovering the particular features of the world. So metaphysics is, is discovering different types of features of the world and just what physics is doing. It's doing it in a more bigger 
metaphysical sense, a wider sense. So these tools don't oppose each other. They complement each other. Just as the plastic metal and the metal detector complement each other, so too does physics and metaphysics complement each other. They help each other. That's why, you know, in order, that's why Einstein said it's very important that we recover a good metaphysics because that's what help us in our understanding of physics. You know, we need metaphysics to under, have a better understanding of physics. They both go hand in hand. So I think that's a common misunderstanding of what metaphysics even is. Now, you also said something at the start earlier on the show about <laughs> how Aquinas doesn't care really about the beginning of the universe. I think this is something that's very odd for people who like to depend on uh, Bill Craig's idea of a cosmological argument where you establish that the universe had a beginning. <laughs> and so we look and say, well, you know, mm -hmm. Aquinas, we can, we can dispense with him because we know the universe did ha <laughs> because he's trying to explain the universe his origins or something of that sort. Why does the origin of the universe not matter to Aquinas? Well, Aquinas, to Aquinas it does matter in a biblical sense because obviously scripture does teach us that the universe had a beginning. It was created. And so he believes that on the witness and testimony of scripture itself. But at the time, he didn't really believe that philosophy and science he proved that. Now, I think he's wrong on that. I don't think Aquinas and Aristotle were always right about everything. Obviously, they're wrong in physics, and even Aquinas admits as much. He was saying, you know, there could are physical theories about how the constellations work. They could be wrong. It's not that they have to be necessarily true. That's the difference between metaphysics and physics, that physics can always have some different way in which to explain different things. Um, so Aquinas was definitely recognizing, you know, that possibility could be that science could be in there, but he didn't see any really possible way at the time to, you know, prove that the universe had a beginning. I think he's wrong on that, but um, he he's still recognizing the importance of a beginning in, in the universe. Nonetheless, though, because you're arguing against certain atheists, um, you want to make accommodations to the fact that atheists are going to have to, in the long run, they're going to have to appeal to something eternal. They have to. And they, if you notice, they always do. What it's the more, they're going to say something like, okay, yeah, okay, this universe had a beginning. They're going to, against the Kalam argument, for example, they're going to say, yeah, sure, okay. But it doesn't necessarily mean you could have multiple infinite universes or some other universe. Maybe it's just a collapse theory of universes. They, this universe collapsed and they create another universe and then the collapse caused another universe to create, you know, the oscillating theory. Or, yeah, multi-universe multi multi -universe theory, you know, multiverse theory. So you have all these theories that kind of postulate a certain set of infinities, whether it's a set of infinities of time going backward in time or a set of infinities of causes or a set of infinity of universes or what have you of things. So atheists are always going to resort to some kind of infinitude. And it was interesting because they're usually, when they do that, they approximate God. They get closer and closer to this idea of God without, uh, without calling it God. Um, and they try to, as hard as they can to avoid the conclusion of God. So the, the, so what Aquinas wants to do is he just wants to say, okay, well, let's assume, you know, let's assume that this is, this, there you can have like some accidental series in which that accidental series is infinite or let's assume that the series of time time goes on infinitely long even if you assume that it doesn't give any advantage to the atheist you still have to embrace the conclusion that god exists and that's what i love about it because then it puts atheists kind of forces atheists in a kind of a corner because their primary means of why not the universe be why couldn't the universe be eternal too or why couldn't it just be this you know it's well, like, yeah, we assume that. That's what we're doing from the very get-go of our argument. We're assuming that it is eternal, just like you say. But even if it's eternal, that it doesn't discount from the fact that it still has to have an explanation of its existence. 
And so that, I think that's very powerful. I think that's why I prefer that type of argument. I like to give an illustration on resilience. I don't really think it's about pitch. When someone asks, picture a, how you can explain something being eternal and needing a cause at the same time. Say, so, okay, <laughs> picture a statue that's eternal and it's been standing in front of a mirror that's eternal as well. And for our eternity, this statue has been in front of a mirror. That means the statue has eternally been reflected in the mirror. But the reflection is still eternally being caused at the same time. So the reflection is dependent on the statue, even though everything in this is eternal. Mm. Yeah, that's a really good analogy, actually. I like that. I like, I like that. The only other analogy I've heard similar to that is the cushion argument. We had a, a bowling ball on top of a pillow, so it's always making that impression eternally. There's still something causing that impression. But I really like this one, actually. It's, I think it's a better argument. <laughs> it vividly presents it more to people's minds. Excuse me, everyone. I'm going to be uh, getting this argument uh, uh, trademarked at this point, so everyone can know I'm the one who came up with it. <laughs> okay, the mirror argument. Good. <laughs> That's good. That's good. <laughs> uh, there is a limit, though, to all these arguments, though, because we can state them all we want to, but you're never going to be able to demonstrate some things like, say, the Trinity <laughs> from this, and you're never going to be able to demonstrate that, mm -hmm. that say, Jesus rose from the dead from these arguments, are you? Mm, yeah, yeah. Right, they're definitely, I think we can't prove them for sure, but it's interesting that you can, there is some evidence for those ideas. Not necessarily that there would be absolutely compelling evidence, but like for example, Scotus and Swinburne, they argue for the Trinity and the basis of love. You know, that, that love has a nature in which you got to have, in order to, have, to be loving, you got to have some object in which you're expressing that love. And then that love has to have some kind of effect, which is the Holy Spirit. You know, so it's like that dynamic, that social unity. In order to have love, you need that. So that's one argument. I don't think it's absolutely conclusive, but I do think it's huh, It's interesting. I know Scotus, uh, one of the, I, I really want to read what Scotus says about this because he's more scholastic than Swinburne. Swinburne's more of a theistic personalist. But I, Swinburne's still respectable, though. This, even though I say he's a theistic personalist, he's really respectable, though. We should definitely read his content. But Nonetheless, I still want to read Scotus because I think he has a very interesting argument and probably more compelling one than that than I'm aware of at the moment. So that might be one argument you could give for the Trinity, in fact. Or you can think of the Trinity like Neoplatonism has a kind of Trinity, too, where the one and wisdom and reason and the spirit, you know, there's, the, there's thought thinking of itself and that thought produces this thinker. Um, it's, there are some allusions, I'd say, in philosophy to the Trinity that makes it not completely like without any evidence. It's not like a completely baseless idea, but nonetheless, it's still a radical idea, a radically different idea that no one was really prepared for, especially when that was introduced in the Christian time. Um, so it was a lot of Christian thinkers trying to explicate that. They have difficulty explaining it, but it was a very important idea. Um, so there's that. And there's also the fact, and, you know, like Plato, for example, he talked about the righteous man, the perfectly righteous man. If you read one of his uh, works. He actually talks about how a righteous man, if he came, if, if he'd come down, he'd be crucified. Um, that was—I thought that was really fascinating. 
you know, crucifixion. He he kind of foresaw. He didn't foresee it completely. He didn't see all the ends for which God would come, but he saw some of it. You know, he saw that he foresaw that there would be some if some perfectly righteous man would come that they would hate him. Um, so there's some important illusions there, not as proofs or anything, but important illusions that I would see that God has kind of put in, I think, in in the minds of pagans to kind of foresee almost a little bit, just even the tiny taste of what was to occur um, in the future. But of course, no one could really expect it. For everyone was surprised. No, no, no. It didn't come out of the mind or imaginations of men that there would be this that God would come and descend down as Jesus and die for our sins. That just seems unfathomable to the Gentiles, especially the uh, Greeks. Something I think we need to discuss also with all these great arguments that we are <laughs> discussing the existence of God. Someone say, okay, like these all seem compelling, but. My life mm-hmm. is suffering right now, and there is so much evil out there, and you're looking at this mm. world, and you're telling me to look at the suffering I've got going on in my life in this world and say there's a good God behind it. Why should I believe in a good God when there's so much mm. evil in the world? Yeah, that's a really good question. So first, I think the most important thing is just to hear someone out, explain what is it that you're suffering through, let them kind of talk their heart out because this is more than just a logical problem. It's an emotional problem. It's something that people struggle with. You can't just talk them out of it. It's like telling someone who's depressed, hey, hey, I got a great solution for you. You're going to love it. Stop being depressed. You know, that's just, that's it. You're going to love this solution. You know, and that's just not going to work. There's a lot more, something deeper going on because the logical problem of evil is, has been for the most part settled, even atheists have said as much for the most part philosophical atheists anyways have said that the logical problem of evil has been definitely debunked you know planet got showed that there is no logical inconsistency with god existing a perfectly good god existing and evil existing because there's freedom there's all there's and god could create some greater good to out of, out of that um and he will so important thing i think when we're addressing these people is someone who's suffering is kind of ask the what's What's a great, what's, how would you suffer more greatly? Like, um, what would be the greater suffering? Suffering pointlessly or suffering with a good end and, and a good purpose in, in mind, you know? I think I would suffer a lot more in a world in which it's devoid of any good meaning, any value, a world devoid of any purpose, any purpose for my suffering. It's just, it just is, it's a freak accident that I'm just here. It's a freak accident that I'm suffering. That I'm no more significant than anybody else. Just a piece of atoms collected together. You know, I think that's a much more intolerable view than to say that simply that, okay, God's allowing suffering, but he's allowing it for a great reason, something that's unsurpassable. You know, when we think about our suffering now, it's like a drop in a bucket of the ocean, you know? That suffering now is going to be infinite. So a lot of times people are concerned about their present circumstances because that's all they can focus on. But if we look at it from a larger perspective, from the perspective of infinity, from the perspective of having an eternal life, uh, knowing that there's that 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 suffering, those trials produces mature character, and a mature character produces endurance, and endurance we, we receive the crown of life. You know, these are good things. These are things that we're striving for, and we're trusting that God has a purpose in mind. That these are all things work together for good for those who love Him. That's the promise that God has. And now, if you don't have those promises, you don't have someone to go to. You don't have someone to appeal to. God is there. He's there listening to our stuff. He counts every tear. He is hearing us, our cries. And yet, you know, he will not let suffering evil go unpunished. He will he will punish evil. He will redeem those who are suffering. You know, blessed are those who mourn. These are words of comfort. These are words of love that God has. 
You know, that love that truly does exist for you. That's what scripture is all about. That's what the gospel message is all about. That the greatest suffering that's ever occurred in this world. You can imagine all conceive of the greatest suffering in your mind is going to be this. That the most perfect holy being came down to die on a cross. The most humiliating death that he was separated from the love of, of the Father. He's that perfect unity, that perfect love. This infinite being who degraded himself in such an infinite way. To come down to take on our sins, our responsibilities, our failures, you know, and that's a beautiful thing, I think. You know, if you recognize where does sin come from, sin, what does all this death, all this suffering come from? It's the that it comes from sin. Ultimately, that's where it comes from. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death and suffering. Creation groans right now at this point. It's groaning, but that is not the end. That's not the final destination. There is hope, because you are valuable. You are made in God's image. You're created for greatness. You're created for glory, for eternal life. Like that is a very beautiful worldview. That's a very powerful worldview in which you're able to endure through the sufferings. And just think of all the movies and things you've you've watched. The great heroes of the of old, the great heroes of the past, and even the great heroes of now. What makes them such great heroes? They who stood the test. They withstood the test of pain and suffering. They took it on themselves to take on that pain, even at the risk of their own lives to fight for something that's worth fighting for. And that's 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 a beautiful thing. And and I, if you look at Lord of the Rings, it's one of my favorite movies of all time. That's what Sam tells Frodo when he's lost his hope. What are we fighting for, Sam? We're fighting for the last good thing. We're fighting for that good thing, for goodness. We're fighting to to love each other, to to have that time of eternal life with each other, you know, and that's that's what we're fighting for and that's the beauty of it, you know, and we, it's not it's not it's ugly when we're suffering through that. Yes, it is. But there's something just tear-wrenching to think about someone, you know, like Boromir, sacrifice, even though he failed the test of the ring, he sacrificed his life for the hobbits, died and took three arrows, fought valiantly for them. He was like going to be a king of Gondor. He had everything going for him, this guy. He sacrificed himself for these nobodies, these hobbits who came out of this little shire. For nobodies. Again, we see something so incredible in that little act, that death of sacrifice. And you would not see if there was no suffering, that suffering tests our character, builds our character. If we have no suffering, we have it easy. We're, we become spoiled, become brats. But through suffering, we learn what it truly means to live. And I think that's, that's an amazing thing. Christianity offers that hope. And only Christianity does because it's the truth. It's not just vain fiction. It's not just psychological, um, you know, self-help thing. It's not a psychological crutch or some kind of, you know, false hope it's a real true living hope that's here and now it's there for you god is here he's closer than the very veins in your neck he's living right here all around us and if you accept him as your lord and savior he will live in you and he will work wonders through you even in the midst of suffering and death just as he did through christ this is christ suffered the greatest evil there ever was the greatest suffering there ever was if he can endure the greatest evil and greatest suffering there ever was he will too because you have the strength of christ living in you you have the strength and love of christ living in you and that's a beautiful hopeful thing so don't lose hope just please i would ask the person if anyone's hearing this consider that your suffering is not meaningless consider that you are not alone that you are loved by an infinite important being which is god and he cares for you so consider the gospel. I know this may not come as proof to you that God exists, but consider it. Just seek him, and you will find him, it says in Scripture. That's his promise. If you seek him with a sincere heart, you really want God in your life. 
you really need someone in your life, that you humble yourself. Like, God, if you do exist, I want to humble myself to you. I want your purpose. I want your vision. I want your story in my life. And God will reach out to you. God will fulfill his promise. That's the beauty of the gospel. You know, I think there's something here also that we can learn about. <clears throat> Why it is that Christians should study philosophy, history, or any other thing out there that it's always a way mm-hmm. to learn more about God <laughs> as well. And mm. philosophy has mm-hmm. been called the handmaiden of theology. Just philosophy is the way we right. do theology. We take the data from the scriptures and go from there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an excellent point. I definitely agree with that. Like philosophy and theology, there are ways of that means that we have available getting to know God, getting into a closer relationship with God. Just as if you have a wife, you know, you want to get to know her. You have different ways of going getting to know her. You spend time with her. You read a book with her. You watch a movie together with her. There are different ways to get to know somebody, you know. And so one of the ways we do that through theology and philosophy, you know, obviously it can't be a completely abstract thing. But knowing who God is is important to then being able to express our affections accordingly in a proper way. Because we know who God is, so we know how we should express those affections. So all that is very important in having this relationship with God. Vitally important, if anything. It says, my people die for their lack of knowledge. And we don't want to die from our lack of knowledge, you know. We want to flourish. And knowledge is going to, through knowledge, we can flourish, really, as truly the beings that we're created to be in God's image. I was talking with someone earlier today going through a hard time (laughs) and trying to help them out with this. And what I kept pointing back to was, what does scripture say about God? What do you know about Mm. God? Because that becomes our foundation, because when you're in the midst of it, it's easy to listen to the emotions and the passions. But the secret is to try and get Mm -hmm. back to that spot of saying, what is really true? Despite everything else, despite everything mm. I'm feeling, despite anything going on, what is really true? And that should be the question of mm. philosophy as well. We should be seeking to ask, what is true? Mm. Mm. That's very true, yeah, because sometimes our feelings can deceive us, you know? We can say God does not love us because we feel that way. But that's not really what the love of God is like. That's... That's not how it, what he says in scripture. You know his love because he displayed that love. Yeah, he displayed that and it proved to us on the cross. So. Okay, that's yes. <laughs> Sorry, I just got the nail here. Um, so he proved that love to us on the cross. And sometimes it just, even if we don't feel that way, we got to ground ourselves in the truth. You know, it says this to love the Lord God to all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Everything, everything. All of our minds. If we love God with all our hearts, but then our minds tell us otherwise, you know, like I don't believe this God even exists. Like, what? You're just loving what a fictional entity? You know, that's that's not good. You know, you you want that love, to, the truth to ground your love. I think it's very important. And meanwhile, important. if we love with just our minds, then God just becomes pretty much an intellectual pursuit, and nothing else. Mm-hmm. Everything we learn about God is essentially trivial. Right. It's not really life changing. Hmm. <laughs> Yeah, it becomes a clashing symbol, as Paul says. And that's the big danger, too. You can let knowledge come puff you up, you know. It can become a, just a matter of academic exercise. 
Whereas if you really pour into this, like if Aquinas, he always made it into a meditation. If you look at the three parts of the Summa, the three parts were actually studies in the presence of God. So all, all of working up into the presence of God with the presence of God in, in, a state, in nature, the presence of God in grace, and the presence of God in the church. You know, broken up into those parts because it's making this into a meditation. It's a, it's a meditation and a time to spend time with God. So you pray. You should pray when you're thinking. You should pray, not just make this into an intellectual thing, but be like amazed. Like when I study this, I'm just amazed. I'm in awe. I'm like, I, I've literally cried tears at sometimes. I'm just thinking, man, just how amazing this doctrine is. The, you know, these teachings of divine simplicity and how it baffles me at times, but yet at the same time, it just it brings me in awe of just how much more amazing God is, how he transcends my mind in so many different ways. His ways are higher than my ways. His thoughts are higher than my thoughts. It humbles me. And that should be the response. That as Paul says, do not be arrogant. You, do not, do not, you don't know it as you ought to know it. None of us do. We don't know it fully. And that's, that's the beauty of it, too, at the same time, is that we'll get to know God for eternity, continuously knowing him. So this should be an exercise of the presence of God. Look at creation and say, wow. This is causing this. Like, dang, that's that's incredible that anything's even being changed at all here. That anything even exists. I just, it just, it just mesmerizes me when I contemplate existence. Just how beautiful it is. How miraculous it is. We kind of start talking, you know, kind of like on the deep end. <laughs> what about some of our mm-hmm. listeners? What can you recommend, you know, if I say, you know, this sounds really good, but it's super, super deep and <laughs> it's hard to understand. Where can I go to get a beginning mm-hmm. grasp on Aquinas and philosophy. Yeah, so one of my favorite books that I've always went to is going to be Aquinas by Edward Fazer. I think that is one of the best recommendations that I could give anyone because that simplifies things and it breaks it down. And if you're not able to follow everything that I'm saying, obviously you won't because there's a lot of ideas there that you just have to take time to chew on and reflect on. But I had to, I read that book five to ten times before I truly, you know, understood it. Because I just meditate, chewing on every single word, how everything related to each other. I was like, hmm, how does that relate? How does that relate? You know, and so it's going to take time to come to a fuller understanding, but that's okay. If your mind is hungry, then feed it. And I, I recommend that's that's really the only book I'd recommend at this point, because for Aquinas, that is. Because other books I've read, they're good. They're not bad. But this one really set it out for me. It really had all I needed to kind of come to a better understanding of Aquinas and it's in an engaging way as well because he's engaging with modern science and modern philosophers so you kind of see some of the objections so that I feel like that's super important it, we can also mention that Phaser has a blog as well a great one and if you like comic books as well he seems to reference those quite a bit and that's uh, edwardphaser.blogspot.com that's F-E-S-E-R is how you spell his name yeah, he, he's. Mhm. Yeah, he's very entertaining. His blog post as well. So that'll be that'll teach you a lot too. And if you want to read the read the last superstition or the five proofs of God's existence from Edward Fraser, you also can't go wrong with that. I'd recommend last superstition because if you're just barely getting into this philosophy stuff, you want to read Aquinas and maybe the last superstition, and maybe from a, another book from a, from a William Craig would be on guard just to kind of set you up with some of the basic argumentation and all that. I think that'd be really important. So, although we do have to remember, Craig is that would be my recommendation, as far as I know. Yeah, he is not. Yeah, he does have insightful things to say, and we should value that. He's definitely a serious thinker, but at the same time, I do think he made some serious errors in some areas. One of them being the Trinity and all that, but that's a different issue. <laughs> 
Well, I don't think there's really enough time to get into another question, so <laughs> let's go ahead and start wrapping things up. But, Gil, do you mm -hmm. have a blog, an email, a website, a way people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more? Yeah, so I do have a blog. It's walkingchristian.com. You're always free to visit that as a contact page as well on there. But I think the best way to contact me would be through Facebook. You can find me on Gil Sanders, and you can just kind of like add me as a friend. I'm very likely to add you or just kind of submit a message request and definitely get back to you as soon as I can. Um, so, I'd, uh, yeah, those are the two primary ways. If you want to email me too, you can email me at gilsanders at me.com. Um, so there are different ways in which you can access. So I'd definitely love to hear from you. And do you have a... <laughs> Any final words you'd like to leave for the Deep Waters audience? Yeah, so um, I affirmed the virgin birth, just like you. So <laughs> that's always a good thing. <laughs> Has to be pointed out, unless an atheist uses that against me. Well, wait, he didn't affirm the virgin birth. So got to always be sure of that. Um, <laughs> and um, I just, yeah, I just thank you for listening. I hope that, you know, this was informative and I would encourage you to definitely give Aquinas a serious look, even if you really have some high skepticism, skeptical thoughts, because he's a Catholic or something. I definitely encourage you to get rid of that. Um, he's even more Protestant than you probably realize. There's definitely some seeds of Protestant thought in him. And even if not, his, his work in the philosophy and scripture is still very valuable things. You can learn to separate the two. Um, and definitely when read Edward Fazer, these just... Uh, the Thomas Parax Lance, you know, he's where it's at today in the modern times. So you you won't regret that and you'll fill your mind with truth. So, yeah, yeah but thanks for yeah, having like me, to... Nick. I appreciate being on your show. I'd like to thank you for coming on. Hopefully, we'll see you back here again sometime. Yeah, that'd be great. I'd be very happy to come to join. It was a great, had a great time. Yeah, I'd like to remind everyone that next week, we're going to have Tom Hobson on, talking about his book, The Historical Jesus and the Historical Joseph Smith. <laughs> For now, I'm Nick Peters, I affirm the virgin birth, and I am signing off. <laughs>